We are in. We're getting ready to go. Uh, so one more Sunday here. Next Sunday, we will be here. And then on October the 10th, we will be at the old flagship cinema in the plaza right beside Daddio's. So you can come early, get your breakfast, and then come over for church. Uh, along with that, let me just mention that to just keep your eyes peeled to the email and the app, uh, we are going to need some help getting cleaned up in there and getting set up. So over the next couple of weeks, we may be asking for a little bit of your help. So please be watching for that, uh, and we'll appreciate you pitching in with us. Uh, in the ongoing theme of what we're dealing with in the last couple of years, there's a lot of things that haven't happened that usually do. One of them has been the Boston Marathon. For the first time in decades in 2020, they didn't run the Boston Marathon. Now, this year they decided to postpone it again. They're going to be running it on October 21st. And I just saw a headline that that was happening, and I got curious. And so I did a little bit of digging, and I found out that 30,000 people run the Boston Marathon every year, 30,000. That, that's twice as many as live in Norway, Oxford, and South Paris. Imagine if everybody in Norway, Oxford, and South Paris got together to run a marathon. <laughs> I'm not running a marathon, I can tell you that. <laughs> but that's what it is, 30,000 people. And so I was thinking about that, 26.2 miles, and I thought, I wonder how many people actually finish it. So... In the usual order of things, I, being a pessimist, thought I bet maybe 50% of people that start the Boston Marathon actually run 26.2 miles. And guess what I found out? 95% of people who start the Boston Marathon finish it. I was astounded by that. Clearly, you thought that's exactly what the number would be. I was astounded by it. I couldn't believe that that many people actually would finish it. And so I got thinking about it, and I know this is really insightful, but I'm guessing that the percentage is that high because everybody who enters the Boston Marathon has spent months and maybe even years preparing for it and training for it. I mean, there's not too many people that roll up to the starting line of the Boston Marathon with a bacon double cheeseburger and a milkshake and say, let's do this, right? I mean, these are serious people. They're skinny, and they have special shoes and little shorts and tank tops, and they're ready to go. That's who runs the Boston Marathon. It's an incredible feat of endurance. It takes a ton of preparation, deliberate preparation. And I'm guessing that it wouldn't take you very long to get discouraged if you tried to run the Boston Marathon without any preparation. I'm guessing that like maybe a mile in, you'd be thinking, what in the world am I doing out here? Well, as we have talked about many times before, and as even the Word of God talks about, life is like a long, difficult run, a marathon, if you will. It's arduous. We get tired. We get injured. We get discouraged. And I want to suggest to you that we don't have a legitimate chance of finishing well unless we are prepared. And the book of James addresses that for us here today. How can we keep going? Now, James is book number 59 of 66. If you're keeping track, you've hung in there for 17 months, only seven more weeks to go after today. 
It was likely the first book of the New Testament that was written in about 45 AD. So when we start our calendars, we start it with the year that Christ was born, AD 0. Christ was about 32 years old or so when he went to the cross. So James was written about 10 or 12 years after Christ died on the cross. James was written by the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. If you are familiar at all with the New Testament, you know there's a whole bunch of Jameses in there. In fact, there are two James that were disciples, but this is not one of them. (laughs) Those were two other guys named James. This James was Jesus' brother, and he became the head of the Jerusalem church. He was initially skeptical of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you will see there that that Jesus even indicated that, that no one in his family really believed who he was for a time. But at some point after the resurrection, James came to faith. And he has written for us a practical guidebook. And if we could put a, a statement in the book of James, we would say that true faith results in a changed life. In other words, we've got to live it. This cannot be just about knowing what the Bible has to say, but rather we need to live what the Bible commands us. And to that effect, there's 108 verses in James, and James gives us 60 commands, 60 challenges of things that we need to be doing as Christ followers if we're going to live out our faith. Because life in the real world is a struggle. He begins by that in the very first chapter. He says, when trials come, this is how you need to live. James is very open about the fact, very clear about the fact that living life in this world is difficult. In the middle of this struggle of life in this world, disciples are called to be steadfast and to be firm in their faith. But how can we do that? I sometimes feel like I'd get discouraged about eight times a day. That's my average. Eight times a day I say, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. This is too difficult. Why is this happening? The absence of logic and the destruction of people's lives and their families. The immorality that has permeated every aspect of our culture. I don't know if your family is like ours, but we're very careful about what we watch. And even in being careful about what we watch, we realize we can't even watch half the commercials. It's just permeated every aspect of our culture. Is it even possible to keep going? I don't know if maybe you've thought that at some point. Is this even possible? Is it realistic that I can be who God is calling me to be in this culture? Is that even possible? Secular historians from the first century tell us that James, who wrote this book, who was the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church, was martyred for his faith. And what was attempted to be, I assume, some kind of irony, he was beaten, and then he was hauled to the pinnacle of the temple, and he was thrown off because of his commitment to be steadfast in his faith. Being a true disciple has never been easy. But true disciples endure to the end. So how do we prepare ourselves to keep going? If you're here and you're a Christ follower, what should our lives look like? I want to suggest to you that our lives need to be built for endurance. 
don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Dakar Rally. Anybody a motocross fan or rally cars or me and Mike and maybe Joe? The Dakar Rally has been running since the 1940s. It was originally called the Paris-Dakar Rally because it was, a, it was an overland cross-country track in vehicles from Dakar in the middle of the desert to Paris because of different things that have happened with terrorism and all those things. It's been held in, the, in South America. Now it's held in just one place through the desert, thousands and thousands of miles. There are cars, there are trucks, there are motorcycles, there are ATVs, and they, it's an endurance race. See who can actually last to get to the other end. I was reading about it the other day in, in a book that I had was going through, and they said the motorcycles that run this race cost over $50,000 for a motorcycle. Every racer has a support team, and they race a predetermined amount of time, amount of distance during the day. They're timed, and at the end of the day, the riders go into the, their tents, and they collapse, and the support team swarms around these motorcycles and completely rebuilds them almost every night. New tires, change the oil. Sometimes they replace the rings or the pistons or whatever needs to be done. Completely rebuild the bike so that they can go another day just to survive. We need to be built for endurance. There are six things that James tells us that we need to be doing to be prepared if we're going to keep going in this sinful world. We're in James chapter 5. I'm going to read four or five verses for you and go through them with you over the next few minutes. James chapter 5 and verse 7. Here's the first one. Be patient. Simply says at the beginning of this verse, be patient, therefore, brothers. Now, I don't have a lot of deep insight here for you. I think you know what be patient means. It means to persevere, and sometimes there's nothing that we can do but wait. I know that sometimes you come here and you expect to hear something that's going to just revolutionize your life. It's going to change everything. And you came here this morning, and you were so expected, and I said, be patient. Sometimes you just have to wait. Sometimes things just don't happen when we want them to happen. And I know that that's difficult because life is not fair. I know it looks like the evil prosper and the righteous suffer. James says if we're going to endure to the end, we have to be patient. And I did find out that this word carries with it the idea of being long-tempered or to defer anger. The opposite of patience is anger. The opposite of being willing to wait is to be aggravated, to be irritated, to be angry with what's going on. And I'll be honest, there have been lots of times when I have felt that. When I've looked out and seen what's happening and I've, I've thought about what God wants us to be doing and who we are called to be. And I've been angry because of everything that has taken place. James says we need to be patient. We know that this shouldn't happen, but we are called to defer our anger, knowing that God is in control of this world. Let me read verse 7 for you in full. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Number one, James says you've got to be patient. Number two, he says we need to anticipate Christ's return. 
be patient until the coming of the Lord. Literally, that word coming there means revival. And a true disciple anticipates, or arrival, sorry, not revival, but arrival. A true disciple anticipates the arrival of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. That's what God's Word tells us. Now, it's interesting when we look at the Word that we are never encouraged to worry about when Christ is coming back. Have you noticed that? There were several times when people asked Jesus, even himself, Paul discussed it, when is Christ coming back? And we're never encouraged to to worry about that question of when, but multiple times we're challenged with this question, will you be ready when Christ comes back? See, the fact is, I don't know when Christ is coming back. And the fact is, neither do you, nor does anyone. Let me give you a little pointer when you're reading people and when you're listening to people teach. If they tell you that they know when Christ is coming back, they're lying. They're lying. They don't know when Christ is coming back. No one knows. That's what the Scripture says very clearly. Jesus himself even said, no one knows. Only the Father. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to anticipate it. How do I know that? Well, look at the example that James gives us. He says the hardworking farmer waits for the precious fruit, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. What does a hardworking farmer do? I don't know this by experience. I just know it by watching hardworking farmers. Hardworking farmers plow. They plant. They fertilize, they cultivate, and then what do they do? They anticipate that at some point it's going to rain so that the crops will grow. Now, can they plow? Yes. Can they plant? Yes. Can they make it rain? No. And James gives us this example. The hardworking farmer knows that there are elements that he can't control, but he doesn't just sit around and wait. We can't control the things that are happening around us. We cannot control the timing of Christ's return, but we work in the meantime, doing the things that we know he is commanded to do. That's how we anticipate Christ's return. No, you don't know when he's coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. I've had probably... A hundred people asked me over the last year and a half, do you think this means we're closer to when Christ is coming back? You know what I say? Yes. You know why? Because the calendar flipped yesterday. Of course we're closer because the days keep going by. But I don't know if this means it's going to happen next week. But in some sense, folks, and I know it's frustrating to not know, and we want to say, how long are we going to do this? Come on, God, how long are you waiting? I know that's frustrating sometimes. But the fact is, whether Christ comes back tomorrow or next year or 20 years from now doesn't change what we're called to do. We're called to anticipate his return. We're called to live like he could come back tomorrow. And guess what? He could. He could. 
There are times when I spend my time alone with the Lord and I say things like, God, if you want to come back today, that would be okay with me. And I'm not trying to be smart. I'm serious. That would be okay. I'm ready. Number three, James says you need to establish your heart. Look at verse 8. You also, here it is again, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, if you're reading this, or maybe if you're just sitting there thinking about what I'm saying, you're like, yeah, okay, we get it. Jesus is coming back. When Scripture repeats something, pay attention. It is being emphasized. James says we need to establish our hearts. That means to fix, to plant down. It means to make stable. It means, it means you've, you've set the base and you've fastened it so that it will not move. For those of you who like to be busy, establish your heart is much more active than being patient, isn't it? So those of you that say, give me something to do, here it is. Establish your heart. Make sure your heart is so solid in the truth of the Word of God, in the knowledge of who He is and what He has promised, that when the storms come, you don't move. See, this that's been happening over the last several months, this is a storm. And a lot of people have moved. A lot of people are gone. They're just gone. They're not here. I don't know where they are. And I don't just mean literally that they're not here this morning, although that's true too. But they have moved. They have decided either deliberately or it's just happened that walking with the Lord is no longer vital to their survival. And they've moved They've changed or they've decided that the things they formerly thought were true are no longer true because of something that has happened. When James says this, there's some resolve here. James is saying, be patient and resolve that you're not going to move no matter what happens. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 when he says that we will all grow into a maturity in the faith so that when the winds blow, we don't get blown away. Paul says it this way, by every wind of doctrine. I say, well, doctrine, Mike, that, that's, that's such an old word. It's such an archaic word. It's such a technical word. Nobody's wandering around thinking about doctrine. Oh, yes, they are. They are. They're not using the word doctrine. But if you don't think what's happening around us is doctrine, then you need to open your eyes. Because Satan is pushing his doctrine in this world, and you have to decide what doctrine am I going to believe? What set of standards am I going to follow? What sort of truths am I going to live my life by? 
Now here, when James describes the coming of the Lord, he says the coming of the Lord is at hand. The word at hand is a verb tense in the original language here, which tells us extreme closeness or imminence. What James is saying is the coming of the Lord is right here. It's right here. What does that tell us? It tells us, friends, that there's nothing else that needs to happen in this world for Christ to come back. He could come back before the service is over. It's imminent. It can happen at any time. It is at hand. This is God's timetable, of course. There is nothing that we can do to influence it. In fact, in some ways, it's hard for us to even understand God's timetable. That's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 3 when he says, One day with the Lord, are you familiar with this verse? One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Because God is eternal. We don't know when it will be, but it is at hand. It will be sudden. It will be sudden. Establish your heart. Here's number four. James says, maintain healthy relationships in the church. Listen to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Maintain healthy relationships in the church. If we're going to survive, if we're going to endure what God is calling us to endure in these coming days, we need to have these healthy relationships. James says, don't grumble against each other, brothers. The word grumble there means to feel grief or anger, but it's a very specific word in the Greek language, and it means grief or anger that is unexpressed. If you have children, you can picture what this word means in your mind right now. Because you have given your children a task, and you have seen them turn and walk away, and they maybe haven't said anything, but you know when you can kind of feel the tension just below the surface? They want to say something, but they, well, maybe sometimes they do, just tell you what they think. Or they hold it in. This word is the hold it in kind. Don't grumble. Now, see, we have, this, we have this thought in our minds often when it comes to interacting with each other, and even as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And we'll say, well, that person really irritated me. They really did something that bothered me, that really offended me, that really upset me, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to cause problems. And we think that it's okay then. I didn't say anything. I didn't lose it. I'm not encouraging you to lose it. But what I am saying is that when we harbor these things in our hearts, it still causes a problem, doesn't it? You may say, well, I didn't say anything, but it did disrupt your relationship, didn't it? Because now you're not talking. Now you're not interacting. Now you're not serving together. Now whatever it is. This is what James is talking about. That's what grumbling is. It's, it's grief or anger, but it's unexpressed. It's in there, and it can turn to bitterness. It disrupts the relationships. Unfortunately, the pressure that we endure and feel in this world can result in us 
speaking or dealing harshly with those that we care about the most. It may not even be about that person. It may be about everything else that you're dealing with. But the tension of life builds and we can mistreat each other. It's interesting that James says, so that you may not be judged. You may be thinking, wait a second. I thought if I was a Christ follower, I, I don't have to face judgment. Well, that's not entirely true. <laughs> You're not going to be judged and punished for your sin. Christ has paid the price for your sin. Your destiny in heaven is assured if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. You won't face His wrath, but we will face His assessment of our words and deeds at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. The judge is at the door. We need to be careful how we treat each other. In part because of that judgment, but you know why I think James is saying this? We need to be careful of how we treat each other because we need each other. We need each other if we're going to endure. Here's number five. Consider those who have endured. Verse 10 says this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, you guys are very well positioned to do this because we just went through the whole Old Testament. Well, we spent one week in each book. We didn't really go through the whole thing. But you remember some of those prophets that we talked about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Zechariah. Do you remember what their job was? Their job was to take the message of God to a bunch of people who almost exclusively did not want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to know what God wanted. They were content in their sin. And they spent day after day of their lives warning people about judgment. If you don't come back to God, if you don't confess your sin, if you don't turn from your wickedness, this is what God is going to do. Guess what? That was not a popular message. And as a result, many of them suffered horrible abuse. Jeremiah alone, we could spend an hour talking about the abuse that Jeremiah alone suffered because of what God had asked him to do. If we were to take time and turn over to the book of Hebrews, we would read there at the end of Hebrews 11 that some of these prophets were tortured, some of them were flogged, some of them were stoned. Some of them were imprisoned. In fact, it says some of them were sawn in half, if you read Hebrews 11, 38 and 39. In the book of Daniel, we are told of three young men, three young Israelites, who were in Babylon as a result of the captivity. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those guys? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Those are their Jewish names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the names they were given when they were taken to Babylon. And they were trained in the Babylonian ways. And yet, despite all of that, they remained true to the Lord. 
And one day Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to put up this huge statue and I'm going to force everyone to worship me. And so he did that. And everyone bowed except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to them and he said, I command you to bow to this statue of me and worship me. And those three young men said, we're not going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar said, you have to or I'm going to throw you into this burning furnace and you'll be burned alive. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. However, if he chooses not to deliver us, please know, O king, that we will not worship you. Now, I think it's incredible that those three young men trusted that God was able to deliver them. But what I think is more incredible than that is that they trusted him so much that they were willing, even if he did not deliver them, to not worship Nebuchadnezzar. You see, we need to get this, folks. Sometimes God does not deliver his people from the pain and suffering of this world. Sometimes our hope is not realized on this side of the grave. That's what the writer to the Hebrews said at the end of chapter 11. You know Hebrews 11, some of you. The hall of faith. All of these great victories won. And then at the end... He talks about those who are tortured and flogged and sawn in half. And he says, you know what he says about them? They did not receive their hope on this earth. We must consider this. The God can and will strengthen us as he did for these that have gone before us. This is not a promise of ease. It's a promise of strength and courage. Number six, James says, consider God's purpose. This is verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God's blessing, James says, is for the steadfast. We've looked at this word before. It means those who remain under the load. The picture is of someone with a heavy, heavy burden on their backs. And when it gets really, really difficult and they get really, really tired, instead of sliding out from under it and dropping it, they stay under it and they keep going. That's the picture. That's where God's blessing is for those who are steadfast. Use the example of Job. If you read the book of Job, you see terrible suffering that Job endured, but with a resolve to honor God in it. And I want you to notice this phrase that James uses. He says to them and to us, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. 
The word purpose there is a Greek word, telos, and it really means the end or the outcome. You've seen the outcome of the plans that the Lord has. And it's the word that we get our word telescope from. Now, I know telescopes don't work this way anymore, but when you watch old pirate movies, this is the way they work. The pirate takes it out of his vest pocket, right? And it's only this big. And then what does he do? He goes, right? And then looks out over the horizon. And the word telos means the end or the plan that is gradually unfolding. Every time you pull a section of that telescope out, the end gets a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer until we see what is going to take place. God's plan is unfolding one step at a time. Now, I understand we don't know it all. I don't know it all. But we certainly know more than James did 2,000 years ago. And James knew a lot more than Moses did. What does James say? He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You have seen it. Listen, folks, when you're looking around and you're discouraged and you're ready to give up, remember, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You have seen the end. You know what the outcome is. How do we know that? We know that through His Word. That's why we do this. That's why we have small groups. That's why we do Theology 101. Week 2, tomorrow night, all are welcome. That's why we do it. Why? Because it's here. It's here. We have seen it, James says. And the important thing is, is that once you have seen it, you can't forget it. You can't stop thinking about it. We've been reading through Isaiah in our small group, our men's small group. We just finished it a couple weeks ago. Several times there that Isaiah is talking about the purpose of God. And he says, this is my purpose. I will do it. James says we've seen his compassion, we've seen his mercy. We know that God has purpose to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people. That's the whole story. We've been talking about it for 17 months. For 17 months that God has a plan for this world. He has a plan for our lives. And no matter what occurs, we must rest in the knowledge of the compassion and the mercy of God. My friends, when your life is very difficult, when it looks like your family is falling apart or your job is going away or you're losing someone that you love, we must remember the compassion and the mercy of God that we have seen. James' message for us, a true disciple endures to the end. Are you preparing yourself to endure to the end? Are you taking care to feed your heart and mind the truth which will sustain you? 
I know, we got to be like the hardworking farmer. We can't control the rain, right? We can't control the rain. But we have been commanded to prepare ourselves. I want you to know this morning that endurance is not incidental. And endurance is not accidental. The Dakar Rally is very different than the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon, 95% of people who start finish. The Dakar Rally, about 50% of those who start the race drop out. They're not prepared for the long haul. How about you? Will you finish the race? Will you keep going? It's difficult. It's hard. But by the grace of God, we can endure. That's what God calls us to. And my friends, God does not call us to something that he will not enable us to do by his grace. Let me encourage you this morning to focus your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace which sustains us. love the message of those lyrics. All your promises we claim. How? Together. Bind us together by the grace of Christ. Folks, that's what we need. Wrap your arms around each other this morning. Encourage each other. Challenge each other to keep going. Walk together. There is no reason for any Christ follower to walk this life alone. It's not the way that God intended intended for us to do it together by the grace and strength of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray your blessing this morning. May we know the power of your spirit working in our hearts, comforting and strengthening us. May we be steadfast. May we remain under the load that you have placed on our shoulders trusting that you will provide. Lord, you have the power to deliver us. You have the power for us to to wake up tomorrow morning and the whole world to be completely different. We trust that you have the ability and the strength to do that. Nevertheless, if you choose not to, we still trust you. We endure to the end for we are yours. Strengthen every person here this morning by your grace that we may keep going. Help us to be patient, Father. It is against our nature, but it is your nature in control of all things to be kind and gracious and merciful to us. That is what we pray in Christ's name. Thank you, my friends. Have a great week.